Hello, I'm Joe Garrity from the Close Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. This month on Building Bridges, we'll be honoring Women's History Month with a two-part series highlighting some important women in American history. Joining us today for part one are Olivia Domboski and Ian Freed. This session was recorded in March 2021. Well, I think Belle de Lockwood is a great starting point to really looking at female politicians right now. She's actually the first female to ever run for president. A lot of people do give that title to Victoria Woodhull, but she and she did run for president. However, she was technically not old enough to hold office. Yeah. She was not 35. So to legally run for president. Legally, yeah. Um, yeah. she's the first female on a ballot in 1888. So this is quite a few decades before women actually had the right to vote. And she is an American feminist. She worked in education. She was also one of the first female attorneys, and she's the first female admitted to practice law for the United States Supreme Court. She actually argued two cases through her career and had a very significant victory when she won a $5 million settlement for the Cherokee Nation for compensation for their force removal. So she didn't focus on one topic in particular. She really wanted to work towards helping women's rights, both you know, economically, but also in society. She really believed that starting females off in education, she did a lot of, now we don't consider it to be controversial at all, but she's actually one of the first females that really wanted girls to have a physical education um, and practice gymnastics. That was considered quite controversial and science and math. She also really believed in co-education. She herself faced a lot of discrimination trying to kind of get a foot in the door for law school and had quite a few hurdles to overcome in order to become a practicing attorney. Incredible life. What What is one of your favorite stories about Belva? So I have two probably. I'll try to limit it. One is that she she did have a hard time not only being accepted into law school, but once she was there, she had to do a lot of her arguments away from men. They thought that she would be a distraction to the other male students. And she also, even though she completed all of her classes, did exceptionally well and passed the bar, she was not able to participate in the graduation ceremony and they did not issue her official law degree. So she actually went to school now at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., but at the time, they were not going to give her her law degree. So she wrote a very strongly worded letter to then-President Ulysses S. Grant 
demanding it. It was apparently not a very polite letter at all. Um, He never gave her a response, but within a week, she did have her law degree. So he did take care of the problem. She did work in D.C., kind of known as an eccentric lady around D.C. She was known for riding a tricycle, which women did not do at that time. But she took on a lot of pension cases representing women. She did a lot of things to try to end legal and economic discrimination against women. But in particular, one of my favorite cases, she actually used the sexist laws to her advantage. She was defending a woman who shot a police officer. And this woman actually sat on the stand and admitted to shooting the police officer. So Belva Lockwood knew she was kind of in a predicament with defending this woman. But the woman's husband actually instructed her to load a gun and shoot the first officer that tried to force his way into the house. Obviously, her husband had a little... They were looking for him? Yes, they were. Um, He had some (laughs) run-ins with the law and had instructed her to load a gun and to shoot anyone, including a police officer, who came into the house. So Lockwood actually argued that common law legally obligated a wife to obey her husband, So the husband (laughs) was technically at fault for shooting the police officer because she was just obeying her husband. So Lockwood actually told the jury that they should find this woman not guilty and that they should bring her husband in because he is actually the one to blame. And she did convince the jury of that. They declared the woman not guilty. I love it because I do think there's you know, doing research on Belva Lockwood, I, her going to the Supreme Court just reminded me a lot of RBG. And then obviously, eventually, when she has a presidential campaign, I think of, you know, many women who have, not many, unfortunately, I guess I shouldn't use that word, ran for <laughs> VP and president after. Right, right. The, the few, but uh, yeah. But you, but growing noteworthy. Yeah. Yes. yes, noteworthy, exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about her running for president. What was that like in 1884 or in 1888? Was she yeah. treated seriously or how did it go? She took it very seriously. She did not have any notions that she would ever be a contender. She was not on a major ticket. It was actually under the National Equal Rights Party, which is a very small party is based in California, and their main platform was supporting women's rights. Obviously, this is, as you said, 1884, 1888. Um, Women do not have the right to vote. There were three territories where they allowed women to vote for president, but she did not receive a single electoral vote, and that was actually her goal. She knew that she would not come close to winning, but she was really hoping she would get one electoral vote, which she unfortunately did not. She actually, in 1888, she only received about 4,100 votes, which about 10 million people voted in that election. So a relatively small number, unfortunately. But she did take it very seriously. She made many different, she traveled around the country, made different speeches, and often was, you know, met with ridicule and extremely sexist comments, especially in the press. They called her 
Belva the Beautiful and did not necessarily take her seriously. The Chicago Herald actually said, at least she never dyed her mustache or eloped with another man's wife. So not giving her a lot of credit, right. uh, especially considering, you know, this wasn't, it's not like she woke up one day and just decided, I think I'll run for president. This is someone who was educated, had done a lot of reforms for women and really worked hard towards that goal. So saying, well, at least she's never, you know, stolen a man's wife is you know, right, extremely right. sexist. But again, 1888. <laughs> so does she does she make it to the the uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment? She does not, unfortunately. Um, she dies in 1917, so three years before the passage of the 19th Amendment. She also uh, strongly believed in world peace. She was a journalist, and she edited a journal called The Peacemaker. She also was on the committee to select the Nobel Peace Prize winner, so she really wanted to work towards peace. So her dying in 1917, she misses our involvement predominantly and was worried about what the United States would look like in a world war. And she will miss, unfortunately, the national push for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. She, When she was working on her educational reform, she did meet Susan B. Anthony. They did have a lot of similar beliefs in terms of educating women and how that was the the best way to start kind of the movement towards women's rights. She also worked a lot in the temperance movement. So she will miss prohibition as well. Unfortunately, passes away before she's able to see a lot of, you know, her good work come to fruition. But laid a lot of the groundwork. Yes, extreme, especially for running for public office. And she did a lot of work trying to help not only female attorneys, but African-American attorneys. She's, she'll actually sponsor the first African-American to be accepted into the Supreme Court, like a lawyer of the Supreme Court. But she is buried in Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Our and, cemetery. Yes, just a couple blocks away from me right now, actually. Before she died... Someone did ask her if she thought the United States would ever have a female president. And she said, I look to see women in the United States Senate and House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. If a woman demonstrates that she is fit, she will someday occupy the White House. But it will be entirely on her own merits, however. No movement will place her there simply because she is a woman. You are listening to Building Bridges. So, Joe, can you introduce us to a real maverick, Representative Jeanette Rankin? Jeanette Rankin. All right. She was quite a maverick. Born in June 11, 1880 in Missoula, Montana. Nine years before Montana even becomes a state. So she grows up on a ranch, cleaning, sewing, working the fields, doing farm chores, watching the younger siblings, and Jeanette is the oldest of seven children. So watching the younger siblings could be quite a bit of work. Yes. Yeah. Um, and But they do value education. The family and Jeanette value her education. So 
She graduates from high school in 1898. She goes on to the University of Montana, where she graduates with a degree in biology in 1902. And then she's in Montana for a couple more years, but she gets the itch to go to California. So she heads out to San Francisco, California, and she's working out there. But she decides to volunteer at the Telegraph Hill Settlement. And she really becomes very interested in social work. So she moves to the other coast, 3,000 miles away. She goes to New York City to go to the New York School of Philanthropy, which is now known as the Columbia University School of Social Work. And she gets her master's degree there. So after getting her master's, she moves back to the West Coast, but this time to Washington State, where she really gets involved in the suffragette movement and the campaign to make Washington the fifth state in the union to enfranchise women. And they are successful in the election of 1910. So the women get the right to vote in Washington. Then she returns to New York City and becomes one of the organizers of the New York Women's Suffrage Party. And they propose a similar amendment in New York, but they are not as successful, which is a real blow because, you know, the women's movement had a long history in New York City and New York State, but it takes them until 1917 to pass the women's suffrage law. So during her time in New York, she also becomes very familiar with traveling down to DC to support the National Women's Suffrage Association. So she gets involved in the national movement and she heads back home in 1911. And she is the first woman to address the Montana legislature in February of 1911. And She becomes the lead organizer in the effort to enfranchise women of Montana. And they are successful in passing the women's right to vote referendum in the election of 1914. So she helps get women the right to vote in her home state. But then what does she do next? So Jeanette is no shrinking wallflower. She says, all right, I'm going to run for Congress. So in 1916, She is the first woman elected to Congress, even though most women in the country were not able to even vote. Her campaign is funded by her brother, Wellington, but she travels to all the remote towns and villages all over the massive state of Montana, every little rail station, shopping center, you name it. She is out there reaching out and getting in touch with all the people. And her main campaign themes were pretty simple and straightforward. She supported suffrage. Mm-hmm. She was for social welfare and prohibition. And we've talked about some of her involvement with the suffrage movement, social welfare. She is always speaking out for workers' rights throughout her entire career, especially the rights of mine workers in her state. But she's successful. She wins the election. She goes to Washington, D.C. in January of 1917. Just a few months into her term, on April 2nd, 1917, President Wilson addresses a joint session of Congress, asking them to make the world safe for democracy by declaring war on Germany. Jeanette Rankin is one of 50 members who vote against entering World War I. And what she says is, the peace problem is a woman's problem. And Representative Rankin is slammed in the press as a dupe for the Kaiser. Unbelievable the reaction. I right. mean, incredible reaction. 
you know, by large numbers, they voted to enter the war. But she decided that she may have voted against the war. But once the soldiers were in harm's way, she would give them her full support. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what she does. Throughout her career in Congress, though, she argues many times that the corruption and dysfunction of government was the direct result of excluding women's participation. So in many ways, she was way ahead of her time. So she won election to Congress by coming actually in second in her state. The top two finishers were elected to Congress to represent the whole state of Montana. Now that is changed in 1917 and Representative Rankin is given the largely Democratic district to run in in 1918. So she says, forget that. I'm going to run for the Senate. So she winds up losing in a close vote in the primary and only serves one term at that time. But having run the campaign for Senate as someone who had helped President Wilson to prosecute the war, a little tidbit of history there. Yeah, that's really interesting. <clears throat> so she's out of office. Where does she turn her next attention? All right. Well, between her, you know, her terms in office, she travels the country in support of women's suffrage, especially right after she loses in the late 19 teens. So she's traveling all over in support of getting the 19th Amendment passed. And when that's successful, she then turns her lobbying efforts to causes for pacifist causes, which she does right up until 1924. But you know, you've had the passage of the 19th Amendment, you've had the end of World War One, and she feels like she wanted to do something else. So she winds up moving to rural Georgia, and she lives a very simple life with no electricity and running water. She can't help herself, so she does start the Georgia Peace Society, and she's in charge of that right up until it dissolves right before the beginning of World War Two. And with the war coming on, she says, OK, I'm running for Congress again. So that's what she does. Jeanette Rankin runs on a peace platform and she is elected to Congress in 1940, starts serving in 1941. Mm -hmm. And she is the only vote on December 8th, 1941, in the 77th Congress. She is the only vote against entering World War II. Speaker Sam Rayburn is begging her to either change her vote or abstain, because he wanted a unanimous vote in the worst way. But Jeanette Rankin's response was, as a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send anyone else. The reaction, again, is even more violent than the first World War. She actually needs security to protect her after that vote. And there's that famous AP photo where she is trapped in a phone booth surrounded by hounding reporters. Wow. After serving just one term again, she is 60 years old at the time. So how does she spend her latter years? Yes, she's in her early 60s, but this woman is not going to be put down. She was so full of life, so much spunk. So she winds up traveling to India to study the teaching of Mahatma Gandhi. And she practices what she preaches and is dedicated to the pacifist movement. And one great example is at 88 years old, 
She leads the anti-war demonstration in Washington, D.C. Wow. Her group and the, and the larger group files for a petition to demonstrate on Capitol Hill. But they are denied because no one had ever been allowed to protest on the Capitol grounds. So towards the end of her march, none other than Jeanette Rankin leads the Rankin Brigade of 5,000 people down Pennsylvania Avenue and around the Peace Monument by the Senate Traffic Circle, becoming the first protest ever on Capitol Hill. But this was a very peaceful protest, okay. unlike our most recent yeah. uh, affair. So Jeanette Rankin led quite a life and certainly was a groundbreaker right to the very end. In fact, in 1992, the National Organization for Women named her the world's outstanding living feminist. And Dan, you will not believe this, but at the time of her death, at the age of 93, she was considering a run for Congress to protest the Vietnam War. Wow. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 93. Talk about a firebrand. (laughs) Yes. 93. I'm done. I'll be honest with you. (laughs) I know. I'm I'm, I'm, like, leave it to the others. I'm tired. I'll talk to you about (laughs) it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Wow. So that's Jeanette Rankin's story. You are listening to Building Bridges. Now we turn to Shirley Chisholm, not only the first African-American woman to seriously run for a party's nomination for president, but she was also the first African-American woman elected to the House of Representatives. Ian Freed is here to tell us more. So, Ian, how did Shirley Chisholm become Representative Chisholm? Joe, the main thing we need to understand is that Shirley Chisholm was born, raised, and lived in Brooklyn, and she brought her Brooklyn attitude to everything in her political career. Yeah, you understand. (laughs) Born in Brooklyn. Yeah. She attended public schools in Brooklyn, and she graduated with high marks, as you'd expect. And even though she was accepted to Vassar and Oberlin Colleges, she decided to attend Brooklyn College on scholarship. And of course, she graduated cum laude. It was with a BA in sociology in 1946. She then worked as a nursery school teacher and nursery school director. And then after marriage, she got her master's in early childhood education from Columbia University in 1952. After that, she worked for New York City as an education consultant. In 1964, she ran for the state legislature in Albany and won the seat. And there she championed legislation that allowed domestic workers to get unemployment insurance. So then in 1968, when there was a court-ordered congressional district that was carved right out of her Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood, Shirley Chisholm decides to take on the male-dominated Democratic Party establishment and run for this new congressional seat. In the primary, she ran a vigorous campaign. So she You have to picture this. She has a truck with a loudspeaker, old school, where she would broadcast from place to place. Ladies and gentlemen, this is fighting Shirley Chisholm coming through. I mean, that's great old school (laughs) stuff. And she beat three men to become the nominee. Her Republican opponent in the general election was James Farmer. He was also African-American, but he argued, get this, against electing a woman to Congress. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> he would say, listen, he would say women have been in the driver's seat in black communities for too long and that the district needed a man's voice in Washington, oh not that God. of a little school teacher. <laughs> you can imagine oh, the reaction. Man. 
<laughs> so, yeah. so Shirley does a brilliant thing. She runs against politics as usual, and she had a campaign slogan that she used for the rest of her political career, which was unbought and unbossed. And election night, she beats Farmer by a two-to-one margin. Wow. It's amazing how dated <laughs> yeah. James Farmer dated. was. But yeah, looking back, my, my mom was at Columbia in 1952. I wonder if they ever ran into each other. Yeah. So then Shirley Chisholm goes to Washington, D.C. as the first African-American woman ever elected to Congress. How was she received when she gets to D.C.? So, Joe, as many of you know, at that time, the Democratic Party leadership was dominated by Southern white men. And as you can expect, they didn't really take her too seriously. For example, when they handed out committee assignments to new members of the House of Representatives, she was given a seat on the Agriculture Committee. Now, I know you know Brooklyn, and for anyone who knows Brooklyn, except for maybe a few backyard vegetable gardens, <laughs> agriculture really isn't an industry there. Am I right? A tree grows in Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's one tree. <laughs> one um, tree. So Shirley Chisholm wanted to help her district, so she appealed the assignment to the Speaker of the House, and he told her to be a good soldier. So she, that doesn't stop her. She then takes her case to the House floor in a speech, and with leadership embarrassed, they finally reassign her to the Veterans Affairs Committee. Now, <laughs> while that wasn't her first choice, she said, well, there are a lot more veterans in my district than trees. <laughs> True. True. And she definitely was a firebrand, willing to take on the establishment. This is probably one reason she decided to take on the challenge of running for president in 1972. Yeah, that's right. In Congress, you know, she did not play the role of a junior member, keeping quiet as she learned the job. For example, her first speech on the House floor was to attack U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. She once remarked, I have no intention of just sitting quietly and observing. And she definitely did not sit quietly and observe. So she gained something of a national following for her speeches and her progressive politics. So when the 1972 presidential election rolls around and no other black politicians are getting in the ring, she decides to run. She said, I might as well launch a campaign. So she declares her candidacy for president in Brooklyn in January 1972. In the beginning of her announcement, she says, I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I am equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people of America. And she ran her unbought and unbossed slogan all around the country through the spring and summer of 1972. This was a big stretch for 1972 for any African-American, let alone a woman, to run for president. How much support did she she actually get? Well, she did get a lot of support where you'd expect from college students and urban populations. But Senator George McGovern had already gotten a lot of progressive support. For example, iconic feminist Gloria Steinem had endorsed George McGovern. The truth is the black political community was pretty divided at the time. Even though she was a founding member of the Black Congressional Caucus, most of the other members, all male, endorsed other candidates, such as Senator Ed Muskie of Maine or the eventual nominee, George McGovern. Chisholm once explained that she actually found she faced more discrimination being a woman in the political arena than she did being Black. But to her credit, she still waged a national campaign. 
She was able to get on 12 primary ballots and went to the Democratic National Convention in Miami with 152 delegates, which was about 10% of the delegate total. To give you an idea of how impressive that is, that was actually more delegates than either Ed Muskie or former Vice President Hubert Humphrey and how many they brought to the convention. So considering her background, this is an incredibly impressive achievement. Really, very impressive. So what was her career like after that presidential run? So she now had a national following. All people all around the country knew her. She was a great speech giver. So as representative, Chisholm had more clout in Congress. She was finally assigned to a seat on the Education and Labor Committee. And in 1977, she got assigned to the powerful House Rules Committee. She also served for a time in leadership as secretary of the Democratic Caucus, and she championed issues such as federal funding for daycare and was a primary sponsor of the school lunch program. When she finally retired from Congress in 1983, she didn't stop her work. She co-founded the National Political Congress of Black Women, and she campaigned for Jesse Jackson's presidential bids in 84 and 1988. She took, in 1983, she taught at Mount Holyoke College, and though she was dominated as U.S. ambassador to Jamaica by President Clinton, she declined to serve due to her ill health. She moved to Florida, uh, where she eventually passed away in 2005. She really did have quite a legacy. And I remember her from the 84 Jackson campaign. Quite a force. I have to tell you, Joe, I once had the privilege of having lunch with Shirley Chisholm back when I was in college. And as you would expect, she was as vivacious, had a great laugh and a smile, just, just what you would expect from the personality that you've seen in video clips. But she did tell me one story that has stuck with me. She said that when she was a young girl, she met Eleanor Roosevelt, and the first lady told a young Shirley that she expected her to do great things with her life. And it was clear that that was a motivating statement, a motivating force for Shirley Chisholm. And I know that Biz Chisholm has served as a similar inspiration for many female political leaders today. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for joining us today on Building Bridges. I want to thank Olivia Dombowski and Ian Freed for joining us today. As always, I'm Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges, and a special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for our original theme music. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening.